Matthew 6, 19, Jesus is speaking and he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now just watch this. You cannot serve God and money. So this is not hard to understand. It's easy to understand. It's probably challenging to embrace because let me tell you the difference between Jesus' audience and this audience tonight. Jesus' audience was primarily poor people on the day he delivered this. He was not really received by the wealthy, the affluent, the successful, and the powerful. Most of the people that were following him were coming to him for a, very, a variety of reasons. Some of that was to be fed. Some of it was to be healed. Some were coming demonized or had loved ones that were demonized and needed to be delivered. A lot of them were coming because of the holy rumors that were swirling around Jesus that maybe this was the Messiah because he spoke like the Messiah and he acts like the Messiah. And not a few of them would have been encouraged that Jesus went hard after the religious hypocrites of his day. So he was a bit of a maverick. He was an incredible radical leader for his day. But most of the people that initially followed him were poor people. Um, you may not feel like it, but compared to the vast majority of the population, the people in this room are very wealthy. And it's, I know we typically judge wealth by classes in, within America, but if you step back and take a global picture, compared, and especially those of you that either grew up in a different place or have spent a lot of time in maybe even third world areas, you, you come back home and you look at the stuff that seems so dingy and small and kind of... Uh, non-valuable when you left and when you come back from a third world country you're like I have been impacted by materialism in ways that I didn't know until I saw poverty and so when Jesus is going through this it almost sounds like he's correcting wealthy people when he's talking about money but he's not do you know what he's doing he's telling poor people don't live your life wanting to be wealthy He's actually talking to people that didn't, primarily people that didn't have a lot and were afraid to lose it. He's primarily talking to people that hadn't had it, didn't have it, and weren't going to have it. And he's saying over them, you aren't missing anything because there's a better way. And so we can take instruction on this tonight as people who are, compared to the rest of the population, wealthy. And so let's go there. Let's just go there tonight and let's think about choices. Let's think about our vision for life. Let's think about the pathway that we're on and let's leave room for Holy Spirit to come and just nudge us towards a more perfect pathway. So let's begin with two types of treasure in life. 
two, two types of treasure in life. And first, Jesus is going to address what I call our temporary treasure. And this is what he says. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures, plural, on earth. And then he says, if you do, they're going to be laid up where moth and rust destroy them or where thieves break in and steal them. Now, pause for a minute here. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible condemn money. Money is not evil. Money is amoral. It is neutral. It is, it is a, a thing that typically either provokes or reveals what is actually in our heart already. But money is not bad. Let me go on and say it another way. Wealth is not bad. If wealth is bad, David's in trouble, Solomon's in trouble, Abraham's in trouble, Jacob's in trouble, and um, Isaac's in trouble. A lot of people are in trouble that we admire in history if wealth is bad. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of riches. The Bible talks about those that love money, and that love for money is the root of all manner of evil. There's something about money that can trigger the most... Um, unprofitable parts of the way human beings are wired. And so warnings are all throughout Scripture about money, but I want to make sure that you know right now that there is absolutely zero biblical foundation for being upset, envious, jealous, or presumptuous about people that have wealth when we may not. This kind of class warfare where people assume that anybody with money must have something wrong in their soul. And that's just not a biblical thought. Now, having said that, let me also balance the scales a little bit and admit this. A lot of people who have money have it because they live for it. It consumes them. It drives them. It dominates them. It is a constant gnawing in their spiritual gut. They want more, more money, more stuff, newer stuff, nicer stuff, because in doing so, it's meeting some spiritual need within them that they're not finding met in God. And so we have to approach this thing and understand it's not just money bad. It's not what we're doing here. Poverty good. The Bible never speaks awesomely about poverty. So there is no essential necessary connection between wealth and lack of spirituality and poverty and higher spirituality but there is this issue of temporary treasure versus eternal treasure so notice first of all the responsibility for this type of treasure what am i talking about jesus is giving a command concerning earthly treasure and he says this do not lay up for yourselves now this is a command from the son of god he says, I don't want you laying up for yourself. What does that mean? Well, he's about to tell us what he does not want us to lay up for ourselves, and we know it's going to be treasures on earth. But he's saying, I want you to hear me as an individual follower of mine, and I want you to get this. Your life cannot be driven by you laying up for yourself. That means giving your time, your energy, your mental faculties, the best of your years, all of your energies, don't be exerting all of your life in order to do what? That's the next part. He says, don't make an earthly reservoir for treasure. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. We don't like to think about this. I got some nice stuff, man. Let me just tell you that. I, I'm, I'm not ashamed that, that through the blessing of the Lord, we have some nice stuff, but we're not living for it. 
We've lost a lot of nice stuff, and we didn't fall apart. We've given away a ton of stuff, and it was great. And some of the stuff that when we got it was awesome, and now here we are, Mamie and I, 22 years later in married life, and we look at that and we're like, why do we even have that thing anymore? That thing was out of style or didn't work 15, 20 years ago. So the reality is treasure on, he- a treasure on earth is all temporary. And so Jesus just makes a reasonable command of us. He says, yeah, don't actually live for that stuff. Don't actually lose your passion in the arena of an earthly reservoir for temporary treasures. And remember, he actually is saying it to each of us as individuals. He's telling us the responsibilities on us. Why? Because of the ruin of this treasure. He's a good savior. He's a good king. He's a good master and Lord. He says, here's the ruin of it. The ruin of the treasure is when you get it, and this is going back 2,000 years in their society, the moth will eat it. The rust or the corruption will uh, decay it and destroy it. And if it happens to endure the moth and the, the decay, thieves can break in and steal it. So in Jesus' day, um, they didn't have, you know, massive clothing factories that could churn out tons of garments. So garments, and especially nicer garments, were a sign of wealth. And it's just like today. I mean, everybody, most people, they, they like to wear some nice stuff. They like to look nice. And that can get out of bounds. And what Jesus is saying in his day is, yeah, um, you actually don't need to pour all of your money into that because eventually the moths are going to get to it and that thing that you longed for and you lived for is going to be eaten by a moth. And he says the same thing about money. He's like, you can get all the money in the world. They didn't have banks back then. They don't have safety deposit boxes. When somebody came into gold or silver or jewels, they typically would dig up the dirt floor of their home, bury it in there, or maybe put it in the the clay walls of their house there in the Middle East and uh, seal it up. And thieves would come in and they'd just tear up the walls, tear up the floor, find their stuff, and boom, everything that that couple or that individual had lived for was now gone. The thieves came in, dug it up, and took it. And so Jesus is saying very clearly here, just don't live for that stuff. This is hard, I get this, because we're we're in a capitalist society and everything around you screams, you must have this. You need more of this. There's a newer version of this. There's a shinier opportunity of this very same thing. And so there's something in our culture that you're constantly breathing in that air. We've been breathing it in so long, we may not even know that we have spiritual lung cancer on this stuff because it is just in the atmosphere. And so all of, all of marketing is meant to hit us in one of our appetites, usually the eye gate, which is what he's going to talk about in a minute, because there's something about us seeing something And then it's connected to other things that we're seeing in that commercial or on that internet ad. And we're like, I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And I can't be happy tomorrow if I don't get that tonight. And that's just, I mean, it's literally part of marketing to get you to want what they're doing. So they make it look as awesome as as it can be made. And and eventually just like, yeah, man, there's no way I can be happy without that. So I'll just confess something. I've been on this um, little keto diet. And I have become keenly aware of the lust of the eyes in a new way. What am I talking about? Pizza commercials. Everywhere I go, pizza is everywhere. And I'm thinking, I wake up and I'm fine. I went to the P.O. box this morning for Transforming Truth and opened it up and there's all these flyers and on top of it is a Pizza Hut pan pizza. I started speaking in tongues. I was just, I was like, this is awesome. 
and I realized I woke up feeling great, and now I'm walking by. I can't have pizza. There's no, there's no good pizza on keto. And I got in the truck, and I was like, just take me home, Lord. I'm, I'm done. I'm just, I'm being a little exaggerated and sarcastic, but the point is something got in my eyes that got in my brain that got in my heart, and I wanted something. And it's whether it's pizza or a Cadillac, it doesn't matter. The reality is there's something in our heart that wants stuff. And what Jesus is saying is that, and he's going to say it before the end of the passage, he's going to say, hey, you can have stuff. Just make sure you're the master of it and it never becomes the master of you. And that's what we have to diagnose our hearts on, not just once, but regularly because we're all susceptible to this. Now, he gives that negative thing first. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. But then he gives us something. He's not just saying, he's cutting us off. He's saying, let me give you something proactively that you all can do. He's saying our treasure, true treasure, is, is going to be addressed in verse number 20. He says, lay up for yourselves. This is positive. Here's something you must do. Lay up for, for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay, so here's the deal. Everybody he's talking to, for the most part, is poor. They're never going to be rich. Just about everybody in Jesus' crowd was never going to be wealthy. It was an agrarian society. They were hand-to-mouth, their crops, their livestock, whatever commerce they did. There were very few people in Jesus' day that were ever going to get wealthy. And so he's telling them, you're not missing anything. Don't live for these things. Don't covet wealth. Don't long to be wealthy. That stuff can disappear on you in a heartbeat. But then Jesus levels the playing field and says to all of them, he says, but here's something everybody can do. You can actually become incredibly wealthy for all of eternity. You must begin storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, we're pretty familiar with that phrase. And what's interesting is the Bible, Jesus himself especially, talks a ton about rewards, eternal rewards. I don't even know what they all are. I, I don't understand because very few specifics are given in the Bible about what the eternal rewards are going to be. They're spoken of in terms of jewels. They're spoken of in terms of crowns of victory. They're spoken in terms of power and capacity in the kingdom. In a parable that Jesus gave to the faithful servants, he said, in the kingdom, you're going to have this many cities to rule over. You're going to have this many cities to rule over. You're going to have this many cities to rule over. And so we know that it's the heart of God to just lavishly reward but because we don't know what they are it takes faith to believe in them it takes faith to believe what Jesus is saying so I'm going to assume we have enough faith to look at what he's saying and say there's something on that there's something in it Jesus is saying do you really want to be wealthy well you can be wealthy momentarily down here and that can be blessed by God. It can be completely good. And you can use it for the glory of God. But some may never have that opportunity, but every Christian can be wealthy in eternity. You have to lay up those treasures in eternity. What does that look like? It means the treasure that we have now, which is not just limited to money. It can be anything. It could be your gifts, your abilities, your relationships, your influence, your opportunities. It could be the talents that you have. And yes, it can be your material resources, and it should include your material resources. But what is he saying? Do you know how you gain the heaven's reward? It's the same way it operates in the financial markets here in the United States of America and globally. You release something in the present and hope 
that it produces a reward in the future. Now down here, it's a roll of the dice because the markets can collapse at any time as many of us have experienced in the last 20 years. We know what can happen with our earthly investments, but here's the beauty of it. Eternal investments are nothing like that. They're promised a return. They're promised a reward. And so what do we do? We release our time now and it secures a reward there in glory. We release our, our, our opportunities and we release them unto the Lord. We manage what we do and when we do it and how we do it. We manage what we give. We release it now. Yes, friends, come on. This is not new. Believers in Jesus Christ, we fund the kingdom. We pour money into the kingdom. We are actually financing a mission that heaven started 2,000 years ago and Christians have been financing and will up until the return of Christ. And Jesus says this, when you release it now, it secures a reward there in eternity. That's what he means by storing up eternal riches, storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, I hate guilt. I, I, I try my best never to motivate by guilt. I just think it's a terrible motivator. But I'm not above giving somebody to think, uh, uh, giving something, somebody something to think about that might bring conviction, which produces a legitimate guilt, and take that legitimate guilt and repent or make a change, and you won't feel guilty about it anymore. What am I talking about? Friends, listen. I don't believe that we can honestly call ourselves a disciple of Jesus if we're not sacrificial towards the kingdom. We, we, we can have head knowledge. We can feel fond about the Lord. We can get our groove on when worship starts. We can pray. We can fast. We can do all these things. But everybody from the most, the, the poorest among them and us to the wealthiest among them and us, everybody can give something. And, and the beauty of it is this. There's not like a dollar figure assigned to it. Um, it's entirely an attitude of the heart and the posture of the heart of one who is storing up for herself or himself or a heavenly treasure, the posture of the heart is, is I want to give into the kingdom to the same proportion that I believe I've received from the king. And so if I view myself as one who has received so much from the king, not only in the material world, but in more, uh, um, probably more precisely, how much grace have I received? How much mercy am I receiving? How much compassion do I receive? How patient is he with me? How, how faithful is he with me? How much do I believe that he loves me? How much do I trust in the promises that he's spoken over our lives? And when I realize how much I'm constantly receiving, it frees me up to release what he requires. And when I release it, which is crazy, we don't lose it. We invest it. And he says, yeah, there's actually a return on that that I'm going to give you. I wish I could get caught up to the third heaven because one of the questions, like if I knew I was going to go up there and get like a day tour um, and we got to ask questions, I would be like, can you tell me what are these rewards and what are we going to do with them? Because inquiring minds, Lord, want to know what is that all about? Because here's the thing, we won't have any needs. We don't need any money in heaven. There's no vending machines up there. There's no pizza sorry flashback there, there's none of that up there we have every need supplied we're with the, the, the one but there's something in him he says oh no 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 remember when i told you that it was better for you to give 
than to receive? And I would say, yes, Lord. I remember you said it was better for me to give than to receive. He says, yeah, that's actually with me too. I feel better as the giver. So I'm going to give for all of eternity. So I've got rewards. He'd probably pat me on the hand and say, Jeff, just don't worry about it. Now go back to earth and sow some eternal treasure. Friends, this is actually real. When you give under the Lord's work, when you give, you're never giving you're not really giving to your church. You're certainly not giving to your church leaders. You're giving to the Lord. You're giving to Him. You have to give through something because He doesn't send angels down with buckets and take our coinage and our you know, credit cards back to heaven. You have to give through something on earth to sow that on earth so it brings forth fruit that bears heavenly reward. So if you're not a giver, listen, you, you, you can be. You actually, if you're saved, you are a giver. The pipe is clogged. And it takes faith, but you start releasing it. And I'm going to tell you this. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven before you experience the hand of God on, you, on, your, on your finances for blessing. He promises to bless your giving now. It says, he gives seed to the sower. And if we want to sow sparingly, we'll just reap sparingly. But he says, if you really want to go overboard with your giving, you will receive overboard in the return. So that's the first type of analogy gives us, these two types of treasure. Verse 21 sums it all up. Just, And I'm not even going to unpack this. Um, really, Jesus tells us how we can know our most trusted treasure. Here's the, this is a kingdom principle for every Christian, really every person. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said that, so it's not up for vote or debate. It's a statement. It's an emphatic indicative. He's saying, let me tell you a truth. You don't have to do anything. It, you don't have, it doesn't depend on you. It's a kingdom truth, and the king says this. If you can trace your material treasures, the thing you treasure most, that's what has the allegiance of your heart. That's a powerful statement. I don't think it's limited, by the way, just to money. It certainly includes money. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus made statements like this. Yeah, if, if you love your father and mother and brothers and sisters and children more than you love me, you can't be my disciple. What does that mean? It means, yeah, they're your treasure. And so he literally puts himself front and center because he is the Lord of glory. And he says, if you invest your treasure in the kingdom, you can know you've got a kingdom heart. But listen, I did this. I remember when somebody, I, I, I was saved less than a year, I think, when I heard somebody preach this thing or a discipler told me this. I didn't have any money. I mean, I had nothing back then. I was single and poor. I was happy, though. I was skinny. Got to eat pizza back then. And, uh, never mind, sorry. See where my... My heart's going. The, this passage was preached, and I remember um, I just had a checkbook, and uh, I just went through my checkbook, and I, I used to write it in there back in the day, and I was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I realized, hmm, most of my treasure is in my leisure and entertainment. I was giving, but I just took Jesus at his word, and I realized, oh, and I'm not talking about my rent at that time, or I think I had a car payment, but I'm talking about my discretionary funds. And I realized I actually have more of a heart for fun than I do for sacrificial giving. 
And so over a period of time, I worked and made adjustments and limited what I was spending and did those things that responsible Christians do with money. And what's amazing is as I gave more into the kingdom, I started receiving more. Raises, promotions, and bonuses came my way in the first three years of my salvation. And I'm not saying I earned it, but what I am saying is God rewarded it. So those are the kind of practical things, and Jesus would have us all as his disciples not to give ourselves a free pass on this. Listen, be courageous about your walk with Jesus. Don't assume anything ever. Don't just assume that we're exactly where we need to be with Jesus because the last time we thought about it, we were exactly where we needed to be with Jesus. But maybe something's changed in those six months. Maybe he's calling you deeper. Maybe he's leading you further into sanctification maybe he wants to stretch your faith by calling you to release more what joy was singing tonight was amazing that when i see your face i wish i had given more she didn't know what i was preaching tonight but that's the theme of this it's like when we get before him i don't want to be regretting i don't want to say why did i why did i straddle the fence between earth and heaven with my stuff so moving beyond two treasures Jesus is going to give us in verses 22 and 23 two types of vision in life. I love this. This is an interesting passage that Matthew releases here. He's going to talk, Jesus is going to talk first of all about a spiritual vision for life. And he he uses um, an interesting, excuse me, an interesting metaphor. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What? What's he talking about here? He's actually using the metaphor of the eye and the light surrounding, from a lamp in this case, he's using it as a metaphor for spiritual vision and what, how we see life. And so you've got this, this issue of focus. And first of all, I'll submit this. Kingdom focus is simple. He says, if your eye is healthy, The King James says, I think, if thine eye be single. And and what it means, it's a word that has a lot of different meanings in the Greek language, but ultimately I think the ESV captures it here. It's talking about a simplified, focused vision. In other words, intentionally live undistracted by the other things in the world. It doesn't mean we pretend they're not there. It doesn't mean we don't pay attention on a certain level, but it just means this, they don't own our attention. You know, we we gaze at Jesus. We gaze at the king. We gaze at his kingdom. We want to wear kingdom lenses that are fashioned by the word of God. And so we look at life through kingdom lenses. We look at our relationships through kingdom lenses. We look at what's going on in the world through a kingdom lens. That's where a lot of people are getting just kind of askew right now because they're looking at life through the political lens. Christians are. And so they're all knotted up on the inside because the whole world feels like this political tug of war and this clash of cultures and stuff. And Christians are like, ah, I'm losing it. And it's starting to affect the relationships within the body of Christ. What's happened? Th- their eye's not healthy. Th- their vision is distorted. But they're, instead of living with a kingdom lens, they're living with a geopolitical lens. And so they're looking at everything th- through a carnal vision. And Jesus is saying this, if your eye is healthy, if your focus is singular, if your vision is fixated, then your whole life is going to be saturated. He says your whole body will be full of light. So think of windows. If you're, if, let's just say it's a beautiful sunny day and you're in a room and you've got beautiful windows 
and you're walking through the room and the windows are clean, the windows are open, the blinds are all the way up and that light is pouring in. And so everything in the room is illuminated. You turn on a lamp, nothing gets brighter because the light that's coming in is brighter than any artificial light in the room. And so what Jesus is saying is here is this, when you have a kingdom vision, when you're looking at the world through Jesus's vision, through the way the kingdom views things and, and, and uh, orchestrates things and facilitates things, when you're doing that, your whole life, your whole body representing the entire life is going to be flooded with that light. So your vision, the way you view things, your mind, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, being transformed and renewed in your mind by the Holy Spirit, what happens is everything changes. What's in you changes. What comes out of you changes. Why? Because your eye is seeing things as God does. And friends, I, I will say this. That can't happen independently of the Word of God being at work in you. It's not just a supernatural experience where, boom, you're automatically fitted with kingdom lenses. You, you have to know how God thinks, and that's primarily going to be revealed through the Word. So picture this. If your eyes are beholding the kingdom because the Word of God is over time, conditioning your soul and aligning your thoughts and, and developing your philosophies and your, your worldview, if all of that's happening through the light of truth and the light from the heart of God, your whole life is going to be full of heaven's light. And anybody can do that. Anybody. Anybody who wants to. Jesus does give the converse. He moves from the spiritual vision for life, and in verse 23, he starts talking about the blurred vision. I think you can understand this. He says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Um, we know this in the physical world, that if you have uh, blindness, cataracts, issues with your eyes. When I was born, I had a lazy eye. And so when I was two years old, I had surgery to correct it. But, but probably for four months before that surgery, they wanted to strengthen the eye. And so they, they actually patched my good eye. So this one would have to work overtime. And I remember just, and I was a little, I, I was not even three years old, but I remember being in an ophthalmologist's office and just barely being able to walk. I still remember the fish tank in there. And I remember I, I was just trying to see and I couldn't see anything. I remember getting my eye up to that thing because my whole eye was just jacked up. It affected my whole life. Of course, they did the surgery and I'm fine now, but the reality is, is that with you, when you have eye problems, uh, it affects your whole life. It affects everything you do with your body. And Jesus is using that in a spiritual way. If you don't see things properly, if your spiritual vision goes dim or dark or blurred, then your whole life is going to take on characteristics of darkness. So we don't need to think of darkness as, you know, just some satanic witchcraft kind of thing. Darkness, listen, Satan's an angel of light. Satan, Satan is, disguises himself as an angel of light, so not all darkness is heinous and scary. Some darkness is actually appealing to our base sense and our natural senses. But if we are flooded with light, we'll recognize darkness. When we are walking in the Word and walking in the Spirit, you won't be the devil's chump anymore. In the, uh, I, I don't know what that just was, but we... It, there's a time in our lives where all of a sudden when you start walking with Jesus and you're a little bit down the road with him after you started, you start recognizing, oh, I don't think the way I used to think anymore. 
I don't see this issue the way that I used to see it when I was walking in darkness. My views have changed. My attitudes have changed. The way I respond has changed. What's happened? The light chases out the darkness. And so Jesus says it's so important what kind of vision you are exercising for your life. Friends, listen. Uh, You live what you think. And so what we think is of premium importance. And there are so many influences on how we think. And most of them that are coming at you at rapid fire pace every day, most of those influences are of darkness. And so if we're not proactively chasing the light and ingesting the light and believing the light and obeying the light, I'm talking about the kingdom, the king, the word, then our lives are going to get dimmed and blurred. And then Jesus just adds this. He says, ultimately, for those that won't walk in the light, they step into blindness, and it stays that way for them. It's blind vision. I know that's kind of um, paradoxical, but he says, if then the light in you, what's coming in you, is actually not light but darkness, Jesus says, how great is that darkness? So... I I don't know what to tell you to do with this. I think the Sermon on the Mount, every single one of these passages and messages basically calls all of us to do at least one thing. Examine yourself. Man, don't we hate that, though? Isn't it easier just to kind of examine the things we know we're doing well and we're good at? Lord, just let me show up on Sunday and bust a move I just want to I just want to worship I just want to Lord give us a good podcast and good sermon and Lord just come on get me feeling good and awesome in the kingdom and stuff and the Lord's like yeah but I was actually trying to shine some light on 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 your attitude about your money your attitude about your marriage your attitude about your relationships your attitude about serving and and it's not that he's mean it's just that if, if he's gonna, if we're going to embrace and receive and walk in the light, the first thing we've got to do is recognize that there's some darkness there. Um, you know why you turn on the light in your house? You want to see what's out there. You want to see what's coming. You want to see where you're going. That's the, why? Because you can't do that in darkness. You end up bumping into stuff. You end up knocking over stuff. You end up getting hurt. Why? Because what's true in the natural is true in the spiritual. When Jesus shines light, it's not to, you know, defeat us or discourage us or to shame us. He's assuming that as followers of his, we want to know where the darkness within us is. That we actually want, we, yes, please show us what's messed up because we don't want to live in darkness, Right? And so he's saying here, he's like, yeah, if, if, if what you consider light is actually darkness, then your whole life's going to be filled with darkness, and he knows we don't want that, so he calls us to examine ourselves. So we got one verse, and I'm going to finish up a little bit early tonight, and all the people said, oh, well, thank you. Appreciate that. That actually edifies me. Nobody said amen. Two types of masters. Two types of masters. How many type A people are in the room? Raise your hand if you're type A. Trey, get both hands up, dude. You're double A. Come on. How many are type A? Yep. Yeah, I, I am. I'm, I'm total type A. I'm, 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 I'm learning to be a nice type A, but I, I, I just that's the way God wired certain people, and that's the way we're going to be. So as a type A kind of dogmatic dude, I love verse 24. You know why? There's zero wobble room. 
no wiggle room, no wobble room, no escape. It's just one big, old, amazing, heavy-duty kingdom truth. And so here it starts. Type A way of saying it. Here's an undeniable fact. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Who said that? Jesus. So is it true? It's true. So Jesus is saying, nobody in this room, nobody in his audience, nobody past, present, or future, there's never been a human being that can serve two masters perpetually. In, in the Roman Empire, at the time where Jesus is speaking these words, um, in the century before Jesus was born, it was estimated that somewhere between 30 and 40% of the Roman Empire was populated by people that were operating in one degree or another of slavery, Roman slaves. And so they were either indentured servants or some of them were full-out slaves, but the Roman Empire was mav massively populated with slaves. So when we're reading the word master, I want you to think of it in that term. That it would have been common to everybody in Jesus' day. It was common for Roman citizens, Greek citizens, to own, and by the way, Jewish people too, to own their servants. Now, those masters were required to provide for their servants, to shelter their servants, to take care of their servants, but here's the deal. They still owned them. They were property. And Jesus is going to use this metaphor that is kind of offends our pride. But let me just make it very plain. In the relationship that we have between us and the Father, He is Father, we are sons and daughters. That's the core of the relationship. But when it comes to the issue of obedience within that, yes, the father-son, father-daughter is still there, but Jesus is bringing in a more intensified metaphor. He's using the master-servant metaphor. And so it's a loyalty issue. The servant's job was to live for the master. That was the servant's job. What the master said, the servant had to do in the Roman Empire. There was no dialogue, there was no debate, there was no... Can I have an option B? It was what the master said the servant did. And so Jesus is actually inserting this thing into the kingdom reality. We call it lordship, that Jesus is Lord of all. I know for the last 15, 20 years, both in music and a lot of preaching and teaching, that there, there's been this insertion of us being able to kind of casually relate to God in almost a flippant, irreverent way. I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a rude awakening for a lot of people when they stand before the Lord of glory. And they realize, oh, he wasn't JC upstairs. You know, that's not, that's not how we interact with him. He's master and he's Lord. He's kind, he's gracious, he's gloriously good. He's love and peace and joy and kindness, all of that. But please remember, he's our master. That we are actually called to obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, the greatest evidence of your love for me is that you trust me enough to do what I say. It's pretty powerful stuff. So here we have this thing of Jesus saying, uh, it's impossible for a servant to have two masters. We'd like to think, not really, because I can give this one my best, and I can give this one my best, and I'm pretty capable, I'm pretty competent. There's benefits for each master. I get benefited from serving both, and I think I can manage this. Now, here's the problem. What do you do when master A that you think you can serve gives you a command 
that disqualifies you from obeying a command from Master B. In other words, they give two opposing commands. One says, at 2 o'clock, go to the market and buy some beef. The other one says, at 2 o'clock, be in the field plowing it up. You can't serve two masters. You have to make a choice. Now, Jesus is going to bring this home in a very practical way, the same place that we began. But this, this, is, a, this is a core message for the church right now. Because there is competition for your loyalty. There's competition for our obedience. There's competition for our allegiance. There are many lords that want to be lord over you. And yet the declaration of the church is this. It was in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire, the early Christians, they, they would, when being forced by the Roman Caesar and, and the army to recant their faith, and the Christians that were told, recant your faith or die, they had to make this confession. Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios. What does that mean? Caesar is Lord. And if those Christians would say, Kaiser Curios, they would, be, uh, they would be absolved and they would not face the death penalty. But the Christians that would not, their confession was this, Christos Curios. Christos Curios. Christ is Lord. They couldn't serve both. And so their allegiance was of such that when they refused to say Kaiser Curios and said Christos Curios, out came the lions or out came the, the, the beheading uh, agent of the Roman government. You and I can't have two masters. We, we, we can't live for two things as the prime. We can't live for us. We can't. We can't live for ourselves. Um, listen, it's, not all, it's, it's really not like a choice between serving the devil and serving God. Most people aren't going to serve the devil. I mean, there are some pretty wicked folk out there that'll actually, they're Satanists and they really want to serve Lucifer. But most people don't, you know, wake up, I don't know if I'm going to serve God or the devil today. I know I'm a Christian, the devil or God. That's not, the, that's not what we're facing. You know what we're facing? I don't know if I'm going to serve God or me. God or me. God, yeah, God. Mm. Me 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 we love the sound of that and it's every day uh if i took probably two minutes maybe one minute i can probably find a few places today where i served me probably same thing with you but not me jeff did you drive in traffic today was that you that cut me off and stuck your hand out the window with some kind of unwelcoming sign towards me? Was that you? See, we just do that. And, and it's a thousand different ways. Selfishness, laziness, indifference, flippancy. So that's a master trying to dominate. So what happens is when we accept Christ, he dethrones us. I mean, we do. We, Jesus come sit on the throne of my heart, forgive me of my sins, I want you to be Lord of my life. And he does, he comes in. And then somewhere, sometime later, we're like, oh, I miss that throne I used to sit. Can, can we share that throne? Can you scooch over a little? Can, can I get on that throne with you? And Jesus says, no, I won't share it with you, but if you're bound and determined to have it, I'll get up and let you rule for a while. You'll regret it, but I'll let you rule if you really feel like you want to rule. No man can serve two masters. Why? 
Because there's got to be an undivided loyalty. Jesus says this, he's either going to hate the one master and love the other master, or he'll be devoted to the one master and despise the other master. That's just basically what it boils down to. Whatever rules your life wants to rule it fully. Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he says, do you not know that you are the servant of the one you obey? You are the servant of the master you obey the most. And so what ends up happening is this loyalty that's divided at some point, you just got to make a decision. Now listen, I'm not preaching sinless perfection. I'm not saying that if Jesus is Lord, you'll never have a fleshly carnal moment or even a season. What I am saying is those fleshly carnal moments and seasons, you'll be very unhappy. And so we have to welcome him to be Lord of all. Um, I'm this tedious with faith. I believe Jesus is Lord over everything in my life. And I want to walk that out. And I'll be the first to tell you, and if you don't believe me, ask my family. I don't always walk out the fact that I know he's Lord of all, but I always want to. So he's Lord over what comes into my eyes, what comes into my ears, what comes out of my mouth. He's Lord over how I spend my time and how I spend my money and how I, how I release any gifting that I might have. He's Lord of all of it. And so what that does is because I want to please the Lord, effectively Lordship says, I want to make sure I'm checking in with him daily. Like literally starting the day, Lord, what do you want to do today? Lord, what can we do together? Lord, open my eyes and my ears and my understanding and my discernment so I'll see the moments that you want to get in on something with me and I get to get in on it with you. Literally, I know that sounds a little whatever, but that's literally the way we approach our days. I don't even want to do it for him. I want to do it with him. When I was younger, I just wanted to do it for me. It was like, Lord, give me my list of things to do. And and if you don't mind, kind of get out of my way and let me do it for you. That was the way I lived for years and years and years. And it was exhausting and lonely and miserable. And then you could just hit a certain place. It's like, Lord, I'm willing to do much less as long as I can do it with you. And that's the joy. And so ultimately, friends, this is, I mean, this is, this is nuts and bolts. If Jesus is Lord, you're ultimately going to hate everything else that tries to master your life. You're going to actually hate it. You're going to be like, "Uh uh-uh. He's a jealous God, and I'm a jealous servant. I don't want anything ruling my heart when he died to pay for it. And so you'll come to that place where you're like, I I, I don't want any other master. And then he ends it with this, and I'm I'm out of time. So look where he brings it home to. It's incredible. He, the summary statement of all he taught, he just said, you, you cannot serve God and money. You can't. Nobody can serve two masters. Well, Jesus, what are those two masters? Jesus put it in, in, in the midst of an impoverished congregation that day. Those people were poor. He says, yeah, you can't live your life serving God and serving money. And to the 21st century American church, to the 21st century American Christians. Guys, we have to believe Jesus. We can enjoy money. We should enjoy the money that he provides for us. Money makes an amazing servant. Money makes a terribly cruel master. So make money and material goods bow before you as you partner with Jesus to use that money and those material goods to release into the kingdom 
to reserve a reward for yourself in heaven that has to happen because Jesus said it's going to and refuse to let money take you places that Jesus just says, yeah, I'm actually not going to go there with you. Just remember, we get to serve the Lord and we get eternally rewarded. In order to do that, we'll keep less of our stuff for us while we're down here. But when we release it, we do not lose a thing because in the end, the master looks at the servant and says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, thank you for the words of your son. Increase our faith. We want Jesus as Lord of all. Father, where we have developed appetites for money and things, just bring those appetites down to the level where we can have fellowship with you in it, Lord. So give us enough. Bless us with as much as we can handle without departing from you. Don't give us a dime more than we can handle if it causes us to depart for you. God, I pray that we would have increased faith and increased appetites for the kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for being a faithful master. In your name, amen.